Welcome to our Advice and Insights podcast, a special series on the case for dividend growth, investing in a post-crisis world. What we're doing here is a series of talks, including some excerpts from the book itself to help capture the investment philosophy known as dividend growth investing that we have made a cornerstone to our practice at the Bonson Group. The book, The Case for Dividend Growth, has just come out and represents my best work and best case and argument for the investment methodology that we believe is at the cornerstone of a truly efficient client experience. We look forward to getting your feedback through this Advice and Insights podcast on the dividend growth orientation. Chapter 7, The Threat of Inflation, The Self-Contained Offense and Defense in Dividend Growth Stocks. You know, there is a reality that eats away at investor returns, eats away at financial goals of real-life people all over the country that I don't think has ever gotten the attention it needs to. And a big part of that, by the way, is historical in the sense that inflation, that is the overall increase in the price level that erodes the purchasing power of people's money, Inflation was so high in the 1970s and early 1980s that when inflation became sort of tamed, both as a result of a monetary policy from Paul Volcker in the early 1980s who set out to tame inflation, but also from the economic growth out of the Reagan years and into the technology years of the 1990s, the greater output and productivity in the economy that soaked up a lot of the extra money supply, which was itself inflationary, you had a radical productivity boom that was counter-inflationary. Uh, that's a good thing. And yet, what I think has happened is that investors became numb to the realities of normal inflation, regular inflation, 1%, 2 3% annual increase in prices, it kind of sneaks up on you. You don't have to pay as much attention to it. It doesn't blow you up all at once, whereas prior inflationary regimes were doing just that. And yet the deterioration of purchasing power caused by the forces of inflation are just as real, just as malignant when it is a low-level inflation that creeps up through time. And so when you look at, let's say, a 20-year period of 2% inflation, the fact of the matter is that it does significant damage to one's purchasing power, the value of their own money. And so we use chapter 7 of the book to give kind of historical context of what inflation is, what causes it, how it hurts investors. We talk about the nuances of inflation, of how uh, particularly over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of distortion in understanding inflation because software, cell phones, televisions, computer equipment has all gone down in price, offsetting inflation, and yet hospital services, health care, college tuition, child care, housing have all moved dramatically higher. And so you have kind of a nuance in inflation that is perhaps different than it's been in the past as well. But here's what I know. For a typical investor saving and investing money in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and they want to take vacations, they want to help with their grandkids' college, 
uh, they're going to have future medical costs, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, the overall price level in the economy, at the risk of sounding political, I don't believe anytime soon politicians are going to abandon their favorite way of ever dealing with excessive spending. And that is by trying to pay off debt with dollars that are worth less than they were when the debt was taken. That's what inflation is. Inflation is a weapon of government. It has been for centuries. And we see it in the United States to some degree. We see it in other countries, even more severely in other continents. So I take for granted that there will be some degree of inflation. And that forces me to say, okay, what's the best thing to do about it? And so many people will say, well, gold is a great hedge against inflation. And we walk through and talk about how gold has actually failed to even keep up with inflation, let alone beat inflation, over the last 40, 45 years. Now, if we look to dividend growth, the subject of these talks, what you have is something that mechanically has an economic logic to it in keeping up with inflation because you, you may have inflation going up year over year, prices are going up in the economy, but the dividends that your companies are paying themselves can go higher, so you get a chance to offset it. But you also get that uh, mechanical feature intrinsically. The analogy I use a lot is that if McDonald's is not raising the price of their cheeseburgers, there isn't inflation. See, that's what inflation is, is a higher price level in the economy. And so to the degree that you have a higher price level because of the increase of money supply and too much money chasing too few goods, the, the kind of macroeconomic forces that create inflation, well, the companies themselves get to pass on the impact of that inflation to their consumers. They receive more revenue from that transaction and then are in a position to pay a higher dividend to their shareholders. And so that higher inflation level gets offset by higher dividend payments that can themselves grow through the realities of inflation. We look in the book at what dividends and dividend-paying stocks have done when there's been interest rate increases. We evaluate dividends relative to fixed income from bonds. And time and time again, you see that there really has not been a superior way of offsetting the impact of inflation. Uh, I'll close here with a quote that I think sums it all up. Because of all the misunderstandings about the causes of inflation, the realities of inflation, and the flawed antidotes to inflation, I truly believe that the best inflation fighter I've ever seen is the dividends you receive from well-run companies themselves growing at a rate multiples of the inflation rate itself. Chapter 8, But What About Stock Buybacks? It certainly is a very common and perhaps uh, intellectually legitimate argument against the merit of dividends as a philosophy of returning capital to shareholders that companies now can use their uh, uh, profits, their after-tax profits, to buy back shares and add the same value to the shareholders. And in fact, do so in a more tax-efficient way because the buyback of those shares, which increases the value of the shares you have, is not itself taxable. And, and there is some merit in theory to it. 
And over the last generation, we've seen stock buybacks used by a lot of very successful, wonderful companies very effectively to add value to shareholders. And one of the great frustrations in writing this chapter and in delivering the talk I'm giving to you right now is that while I am in favor of dividend growth, dividend payments that are growing as a superior and more investor-friendly, shareholder-friendly mechanism for companies to distribute their after-tax cash flow with you versus stock buybacks, the fact of the matter is that I hold in contempt most of the arguments that are being made today against stock buybacks. See, most people today are not arguing, oh, a company has achieved certain degrees of profits, and from those profits, they have to make a decision about what they want to do with the profits, and we think it's wrong that they're paying, uh, that they're buying back stock with it, and we wish they would do this or this instead. See, rather, what most people are doing is saying, oh, they should make less profits. They should spend more on wages. They should spend more on employees. They should give more in corporate philanthropy or something like that. And so I actually can't stand the idea of being lumped in with those silly arguments, which don't have anything to do with what a company does with its after-tax profits. Those arguments are actually an argument against after-tax profits. And because I believe in profits and the incentives that they generate in increasing economic productivity, um, I have no interest in the idea that something a company could do with its after-tax profits is wrong because we wish they would be spending more money before they get to the level of profits. See, I am limiting my conversation to what a company does with its profits. What drives value for stakeholders of companies is, in fact, the profit motive that serves as the engine of free enterprise, which increases economic productivity and then increases the pool of money from which wages can be paid out, employees can be hired, new initiatives can be developed, new capital expenditures exerted, and so forth. So I hesitate to make an argument against stock buybacks. But I do so right now in the context of a very different framework than the modern debate on the subject. And that is what a company ought to do for me, the shareholder, for you, the shareholder, when it comes to their after-tax profits. And I argue that dividend growth uh, represents a superior solution. Now, first, let's review companies' options. They've done what they do as a company. They've achieved revenues. They've spent money. And then they have profits left, and they are a perpetual business that is going to continue to get up out of bed the next day and do more of the same. And with those profits they've generated, they can re reinvest in the company. They can then expand into a new market, pursue a new avenue of business, put more money into new equipment, new inventories. And we take for granted that a certain degree of reinvestment of profits is necessary to grow and sustain a company. And we have no beef with that. And in fact, encourage reinvestment, reasonable, sensible reinvestment. But see, no shareholder, no risk taker wants to constantly see their profits reinvested back in the company, delaying permanently, deferring permanently the reward of their investment. 
Now, of course, a company could pay down debt with F-Tax profits. And in fact, for a lot of companies, that'd be the right thing to do. By the way, for a lot of dividend growth companies, it's the right thing to do. It makes whatever dividend they are paying or will pay more sustainable if they've achieved relief on the debt side of their balance sheet. Some companies that tracks profits might pursue the acquisition of competitors or strategic partners. So-called M&A often represents a great idea. Cash retention, of course, can be a great idea. A rainy day fund holding on to money for future needs, especially for more cyclical businesses or whatnot that, that expect to have kind of uh, rainy day problems or, or slowdowns in their, in their business or in their industry. And then you get to stock buybacks where people use the cash to buy back more shares. That increases their earnings per share. Or you get dividend payments, which is the subject of this entire talk and, of course, the entire book I've written. And in its simplest form, a dividend is just a portion of the profits the company earned paid back to the shareholders. So if what you believe stock ownership is, is a manifest, is a claim on earnings, there's nothing uh, easier to define in manifesting that claim on earnings than the receipt of a dividend. Now, I believe that one of the inerrant superiorities of a dividend to a stock buyback is the monetization or the realization of the gain versus the compounding of the risk, that the stock buyback is simply adding more or delaying further monetization of the investment. It does, in fact, make the underlying value higher, and yet it defers what you will be getting. And what you're getting is more shares of a business that has risk, and there's nothing wrong with that risk. It's why you chose to invest in it, but you just simply are adding to the risk. And you may be willing to do that, but as we talked about before, all investors invest for the return of cash at some degree. And what dividends do is help monetize the risk you took. They reward you for the risk you took as opposed to a perpetual state of compounding. There's other issues with stock buybacks too. It's complicating because there's a conflict of interest so often in the C-suite. So many companies compensate their CEO and other high-level senior executives with earnings per share metrics. And so by using stock buybacks out of the treasury of the company, you can increase the earnings per share that often drive executive bonuses. Now, you oftentimes when critics of stock buybacks refer to that a lot of companies issue a bunch of debt and then buy back stock with the debt, and that's not a good practice. And that's and that I would agree. I, I'm not referring to that, and I'm not referring to those companies where they went out, bought a whole, a whole bunch of their stock back, and then the stock price has dropped a lot over time. You, you know that the problem there was not the stock buyback. The problem there was some other aspect of company execution, of company strategy. So if one doesn't want to have excessive debt funding of share buybacks, having a natural interest rate in the economy that is not artificially below the return on invested capital would go a long way to doing that. Uh, so monetary policy has a lot more to blame than anything else on stock buybacks. However, I'm referring to what benefits the shareholder receives. Dividends, they tend to be far more stable than share buybacks. And this is an important reality. Reading from the book, this reality validated through history in convincing fashion when being discussed in the context of faithful dividend growers, dividends set a tradition and an expectation. 
Market expectations for dividend payers and dividend growers is that they will pay and that they will grow. No such expectation exists for buybacks, even though periods of decline are probably the best time to be buying back shares. Instead, it creates a cyclicality effect that places the buyback activity heavily in line with the stock price and the earnings. Now, of course, some investors may welcome this volatility relationship, but the investor looking for a more stable experience will find dividends to be more reliable, even avoiding negative movement at all in terms of the return of cash to shareholders, dividends that are sustained through those uh, different economically challenging periods. In conclusion, again, reading from the book, stock buybacks are a valuable use of after-tax earnings in many situations. They do not represent a threat to wages, workers, and innovation, as profits themselves drive all growth incentives and make possible the very wages and workers we're concerned about. A company can be poorly run, but the profit motive is a healthy one to drive innovation and productivity. It is what a company does with those profits that's our concern. History has been clear that a heavy emphasis on dividend distributions to shareholders creates more alignment with shareholders than stock buybacks do. It is less susceptible to manipulation, is less cyclical and unreliable, and it's more mechanically beneficial to most investors. Thank you for listening to this Advice and Insights special podcast series covering the case for dividend growth. We hope you have found it enlightening and at least given you a taste of what it is we believe at the cornerstone of our investment process. Of course, we really do encourage you to buy a copy of The Case for Dividend Growth or reach out to us and maybe we'll get you a copy. We want you to read the whole book, not just merely rely on the podcast, but we do hope that this has given you a taste of the arguments that we make for dividend growth investing and giving you a better foundation to understanding the investment methodology itself. Thank you for listening to Advice and Insights Podcast. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and it's not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.